you're listening to the Sunday Morning Sermon from First Baptist Church Seminole, Oklahoma. Amen. Our responsive reading today comes from the Baptist Hymnal, page 349. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are too, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And he is the head of the body and the church. He is the beginning of the first world. Among the dead, that in everything he might have supremacy. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Our children be dismissed to the children's church and Jesus' meeting services. And it's such a great day to be in the house of the Lord. I look forward to every Sunday gathering with you, and they're even just a little bit sweeter when the weather allows us to wear flannels. So I am thankful for that. Brother Tim, you didn't get the memo on the flannel today. I should have called you. I'm sorry. So, yeah. Well, I call your attention to Joshua and chapter 8 today. Joshua and chapter 8. Today we're going to be considering verses 30 through 35. Now, as a brief measure of review, we took a gaze last week into the second, for the second week into verses 20 through 29. Last week, we had a particular consideration of the final judgment of Christ that is foreshadowed in Joshua chapter 8. It is foreshadowed as the command of God is given to hang the king of Ai on the tree and for everyone to see the Lord's punishment for rebellion and sin as well as the fate of all of AI for their rebellion and sin was both swift and just at the hands of the Lord the victory that Israel will receive as a blessing was God's preordained victory for them remember it was God's plan that prospered them and his plans are both good and perfect. There will be no person, no nation or people in the end that can stand against the will of God, that can stand against the holiness of God or the justice of God. But we are reminded that he does not put an end to the rebellious sinner simply because he is bloodthirsty. In fact, he must put an end to sin because otherwise he could never dwell with his people. God's glory and the enemy's playground 
have no home to share. You know those commercials that they show during college football season, the, Heisman, the Nissan Heisman house, and for all the past Heisman winners, they all live in the same house. Once were enemies, but now because of the trophy of the Heisman, they live together. It's Cowboys fans and Sooners fans and Crimson Tide fans and Auburn fans. I mean, it's the, the enemies dwell in one house together, and that can be humorous, but the enemies of God and the rebellious and the sinner and the holiness and righteousness of God, they don't dwell in the same place, in the same house, as the same people. It's not like that with the Lord. But thanks be to God for what kind of God would have a life or live or be like us. A God that is able to lie and cheat and gossip and steal and cause mischief, right? A God like us? No way. Well, He wouldn't even be a God at all if He was like us. So it is not that the God of Israel is to cleanse the land and destroy rebellion simply because He is moody or emotional. No, He does so because of His glory because of his righteousness, because of his justice, because of his mercy and his love, which are all attributes that the Lord shares simultaneously. We've talked about this before. You and I cannot share particular attributes simultaneously all the time. The human pits attributes against one another, but God in His sovereignty, in His holiness, can be both a righteous God of wrath and at the same time be a perfect loving God of kindness. And it is most perfectly demonstrated at the cross where both God's wrath and love were poured out simultaneously. It's because of His holiness that He requires a holy dwelling for his people. Because of his justice, he requires a payment for the rebellion against his holiness. Because of his mercy, he is the provision and victory for his people. And because of his love, he is even willing to give his one and only son to end sin and rebellion once and for all. So last week, we took a hard look at this final judgment of Christ, the cleansing of the land, the cleansing of the, the, the land of Ai, and the purpose behind that. And it may seem that we're headed that direction this week, but rest easy, well, not too easy, because just as the theology of the final judgment of Christ is found in verses 20 through 29, as well as the perfect plans of God, verses 30 through 35 have a wonderful theology for us today and this theology is that because of the glorious victory that is secured by God through his son Jesus Christ there is a grand and beautiful assembly in fact that's the title of this morning's message something about a grand and beautiful assembly this assembly will have an inheritance this assembly will be blessed 
will be known as the people of the Lord, the house of the Lord. He will tabernacle with them, he will lead them, and they will worship him in truth, obedience, and even in diversity. So would you stand with me as we honor the Lord, the reading of his word, Joshua chapter 8, starting in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. Then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. There on the stones... Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the Israelites. All Israel, resident, alien, and citizen alike, with their elders, officers, and judges, stood on either side of the ark of the Lord's covenant, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. As Moses the Lord's servant had commanded earlier concerning blessing the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, the dependents, and the resident aliens who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do pray that your word, as it is alive before us today, as it comes from you, through your servants, secured for all of eternity for us, that we would be deeply encouraged as the assembly of God, deeply encouraged by it today. It's in Christ and we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So Israel got their second shot at AI, and we've seen that. We've read that multiple times. They failed the first time because of their disobedience. They paid the price for that disobedience. Joshua goes and renews the covenant before the Lord. They get their second chance at AI. They submit and are are obedient to the plans of the Lord, which were different from the plans to, to win at Jericho. They succeed by the Lord's hand and provision. And not only that, they lay out a foreshadowing of what happens to all those who stand in the way of the Lord. And now comes the time where they do a few things here. They are set here to renew their commitment to the law of God. They are set here to be obedient in their posture to the Lord. But they are also here in verses 30 through 35 to worship the Lord together as one people of God. It is He who secured their victory. It's He who made the statement with their king, the lesser king, the king of Ai. And now Joshua's building, he builds an altar to the Lord just as Moses had commanded. And also Joshua is now commanded This is the place where for right now, this nation will assemble a place for them to remember and most importantly, a place for them to worship. Because we can't forget that back in Joshua chapter 7, verse 11, the Lord said this 
about his people. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenants. They had broken that covenant, broken that obedience. They had renewed that covenant, and then they had victory, and now they are set to remember the Lord's faithfulness and goodness in that. So today, what we're reading is a renewal of their relationship with the Lord. This moment is a moment to remember that the script, if you will, that the Lord had written, the game plan that the Lord has given His people was established through Moses and the law of God that was given and commanded to and commended actually to Joshua as well. Don't forget what chapter 1 says. Above all, This is what the Lord says to Joshua, above all, be strong and courageous to carefully observe the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn to the right or the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night and to carefully observe everything in it. Then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. So... On this day, after the Lord led them into the defeat of Ai, after they followed all of his instructions, his good and perfect plan, they now, under the leadership of Joshua, are set to renew their commitment to the law of God. And in what way are they doing this? As the Lord has commanded, in unity and in worship. The Lord has commanded His people to gather in unity and in worship to remember what He has done for them. And even most importantly, what He has done for them, but what He has done for His glory. Again, the title of this morning's message is something about a grand and beautiful Assembly. So let's talk about the grand and what is beautiful. Uh, why are they a grand assembly, you might ask? Notice that in those five verses, two times the word assembly is used to describe the people coming together. In just five verses, the book of Joshua in these five verses tells us something significant about an assembly of God's people. The first thing I want to pull out from this is that they're grand. The definition of grand is given to us like this. It's magnificent and imposing in appearance, denoting the largest or most important item of its kind. The scriptures teach us that the assembly in God's house is a great and glorious assembly. Psalm 82, verse 1, the psalmist says, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Psalm 107, verse 32, let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. John records in his vision in Revelation, stranded on an island, the Lord blessed John with a vision for us to see what is coming. 
And John says in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 9 of Revelation, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Sounds similar to how the book of Joshua describes the assembly in the Old Testament after the book, after the victory in Ai. Again, all Israel, resident, alien, and citizen alike with their elders and officers and judges. Again, at the end, verse 35 the entire assembly of Israel, including the women and dependents and resident aliens who lived among them. This is a grand assembly of people. In this grand assembly, where God presides, where God is exalted, and where all peoples of the Lord gather to worship. Notice again in Joshua 8, who is gathered? All Israel, resident alien and citizen alike. Verse 35, all assembled, including resident aliens. It's an interesting turn of phrases in the Old Testament. Who are the resident aliens mentioned twice with Israel? I mean, I was taught, I've been in church my whole life, and I was always taught that in the Old Testament, it was just the house of Israel. That's all it was. So the people that belonged to Israel were the people that were the Lord's. And everybody else was just the enemy of God, and everybody else didn't belong, right? And yet here, we're now in the second moment in the book of Joshua where we read about outsiders being accepted inside the house of God. First, it was Rahab and her family. They were pagans. She was a prostitute. They weren't, born Isra- they weren't born in Israel. They weren't Jews. They didn't belong in that house, and yet they're received in and saved from the destruction. And again, we have this descriptive word of resident aliens living with God's people, Israel. Does that mean they are just kind of going along for the ride and Uh, You know, they're on the very back, they're on the caboose, you know, and we give them the table scraps. Or what does it mean? Why are they described twice? There's a, most of us can probably relate to a beautiful analogy here of sports. Sports are really any type of gaming where you group with people for a particular outcome. You have people from Every walk of life, race, gender, rich, and poor, and they can, in those moments, all be pulling for one team. And your team has an enemy, right? Everybody on your team that's pulling the wagon together and rooting and cheering and and this is your team, you have an enemy and it's the other team. There's an obstacle to overcome for your team to have a victory. And it's really impressive to see all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds agree on something. No matter their status in this crazy world. I mean, just yesterday you saw a sea of people. Half of them were orange and half of them were crimson, right? But you got a team. If you're wearing the red shirt, you're on the red team. If you're wearing an orange shirt, burnt orange, whatever orange Texas is, whatever nasty color that is, you're wearing, that's your team. 
right? You're the orange team and you got the red team. It was the same when you were a kid and you were picked for soccer. You were on the red team, the green team, the blue team, or the orange team, right? That was your team. And everybody was working together on that team. But everybody on the red team pulls together no matter where they're from. Let me just say this. Whether you're red team this morning or the good orange, the good orange team, Randy, this morning. If any of you are ready to join the green and yellow team, we would love to receive you. The ducks are doing well. But notice, yes, all the way back in the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, the nature of those who are assembled looks a whole lot like the nature of those who are assembled when Christ returns. God has always been a God of redemption for all people who will put their faith in Him, for all people who will turn their back on sin and rebellion and receive the Lord and obey the Lord. There isn't a season where God rejected people because of their faith and a season where then He accepted people because of their faith. He's always received people who put their faith in Him, either in the promise of the Messiah or in the person of the Messiah who has already come. But it's a grand assembly. We see that those born as Israelites and those not born as Israelites, the resident alien, if you will. By the way, the word uh, alien here, that word is gar, uh, and it refers to foreigners who lived as permanent residents with Israel. They received, the Bible talks about in Numbers, and they received all of the blessings. They received everything that Israel received. Once again, we see how the mercy of the Lord is available to all who seek. Remember, you know, the same with Rahab. So now twice we've seen non-resident Israelites who are part of the official assembly of God's house. It's a strong reminder to us that they're not just there as a token appreciation of their faithfulness to God's people. No, they're part of the family. Their faith they're part of the family, born Israelite or not. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 at a time to remind them of their heritage in the faith, their entrance into the grand assembly. And he says to them in Ephesians 2 verse 12, remember that at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of heaven and foreigners or aliens of the covenant promise without hope and without God in the world. He goes on to further describe who they are in Christ as the assembly in Ephesians 2 starting in verse 19. So then you are no longer aliens and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, we read this, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Don't you love it how here at First Baptist Church, the Lord uh, in his provision always just puts our worship services together where it seems like everything has been assimilated through long drawn out hours of meetings between Garrett and myself and Josh and Matt and just whoever, just name anybody. And the truth is that because our doctrines and our theologies in discussion all the time align because of that. There is a level of trust about the presentation of what matters in the worship service. And then you get here on a Sunday morning. You know the songs are going to be sung, but you get here and you're singing those songs. And you go, thank you, Lord, that you put all things together to help make sense of what you're teaching us today. That is so neat. And it's also, I'll tell you, unique. It doesn't happen everywhere. I'm thankful that the leadership at First Baptist Church the ministry staff, the deacons, the elders, the Sunday school leaders are on the same page with what's supposed to happen on Sunday morning. And I'm thankful for that. Resident aliens. It brings out an interesting point of this grand assembly. Setting the political narrative aside that so many today like to just hold up with just outstretched arms. Everyone, everyone, all who seek refuge in a place unlike their own are aliens. Everyone who seeks refuge in a place unlike their own are aliens. The Apostle Paul says, you were like that. You had a place of your own and it wasn't like this place. But when you gave your life to Christ, you sought refuge in a new place. You were an alien, but you are not anymore. There were aliens in the Old Testament that sought refuge in the Lord. And when they sought refuge in the Lord, they were welcomed into the house of the Lord as family. That's what makes the assembly so grand. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race, every alien, all who put their hope in Christ for salvation are what make a grand assembly. But what about the beautiful side? It's a grand assembly. How is it a beautiful assembly? We must note that in the Old Testament, when the word assembly is used, it denotes the gathered as gathered for worship. Anytime the Hebrew word assembly is used, it is always used in the context of a gathered people gathered for worship. It's the sole use of the word assembly in Joshua as they are gathered to remember, renew, and to worship. Edah is the word that's used here, Edah, which is a word used in Hebrew to describe this particular form in verse 35, but it denotes Three, the word Edah denotes three aspects of the assembly in the Hebrew language. And it's used three different times in the scriptures. The first time it's used is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, to denote an appointed or purposed meeting, an intentional time for God's people to meet, a, if you will, a scheduled appointed gathering time. We do that still. We call it Sunday morning, 1045, gathered worship together. So in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 1024, when it says 
Never forsake the gathering of believers. Gathering, a Greek word and the Hebrew word edah, those are, they denote the same thing. God's people are to schedule a time to meet on purpose, for the purpose of worship. And we're not supposed to forsake that. Uh-oh. I'm just telling you what the word of the Lord says. You can deal with the conviction between you and God. Second time it's used is in Judges 14, 8. And in this particular case, it's denoting a swarm of bees that swarm to honey. The assembly of bees that are coming to consume honey. Same word used to denote a different meaning than just a scheduled appointment. I don't think the bees are scheduling when the honey's gonna show up somewhere and they're gonna go to it. No, the bees figure out there's some honey somewhere and they tell the other bees and they tell the other bees and they tell the other bees, we're going where the honey is. And they swarm the honey. Here in this verse, in Joshua chapter eight, we see its third meaning, and that is it denotes beauty or ornament, an ornament. That's this particular use. But in all, the word means to gather at an appointed time, the assembly meets, and when they meet on purpose to worship, they are a community of God, and something sweeter than honey is deposited into the lives of those who gather, whose beauty is an ornament that is unsurpassable. You see how the beauty of God's language in the scriptures, as it assimilates and works together, teaches us something beauty, beautiful about who God is and about who we are. Again, I'll say, those words denote together an appointed time as the assembly meets, when they meet on purpose to worship, they are a community of God and something sweeter than honey is deposited into the lives of those who gather whose beauty is an ornament that is unsurpassable. Praise be to God. We're about to put Christmas trees up. Some of us sooner than us, some of us do, maybe some of you have them up already, I don't know. The Hallmark movies, the Christmas Hallmark movies have started, okay? They're there, all right? There's some fall ones. My wife's watching some of the fall ones right now, but those just aren't as exciting. Those ones are corny. The fall ones are corny. The Christmas ones, that's the sweet spot, okay? Very realistic. Great acting. But we can't turn our eyes away, can we? It's Christmas. I love a good Christmas tree. I know Robbie likes a good Christmas tree. Robbie loves Christmas trees. And I love that Robbie loves Christmas trees because it means that here at the church, she gathers ladies and we have lots of beautiful Christmas trees. But on the Christmas tree, you put ornaments. You see, we might care a little bit about the way the tree looks, you know, the kind of pine needle it is and whether it has pine cones or not, the foundation and how it's housed in the, you know, the, the stand and all that. We might care a little bit about that, but ultimately, that's the lesser of the Christmas tree. We like to decorate the Christmas tree. We like the Christmas tree to show some remembrance of our family, some remembrance of something significant. 
That's why when your kids, and they're not in here, they're down there, the ones that are in here are old enough to hear this, that's why when they bring you some ugly ornament they made at school or something, you hang it on the tree anyway. Because it's, it's a remembrance. This is part of our family. Then there are the other ornaments, the shimmery, shiny ones. And they catch the light in the right way, and you know, they just look beautiful. That's the word that's used here to describe the people of God gathered. Look at this beautiful remembrance. Look at this beautiful ornament that's gathered to worship the Lord. Look at how they reflect His beauty. Look at how they reflect what He has done and who He is. We gather, and as we gather to receive something sweeter than honey deposited into our lives in our appointed meeting times, we are an ornament that draws attention to the glory of God, to the beauty of God, and that is what makes us a beautiful assembly. What the Lord has deposited into us, what the Lord has done for us makes us beautiful. Not because of who our own efforts and the things that we can think of and the things that we can do, but because of who He is. The New Testament describes the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13 as something priceless. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied it. Then in his joy goes and sells everything he has and buys that field where that treasure is. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. There may have been a price tag on the pearl, but to the merchant, the pearl was priceless. His kingdom is a treasure and a pearl. Beautiful doesn't even begin to describe the assembly of God. When Christ returns in all His glory and gathers the great assembly, places her in a new heaven and a new earth, and she rests in His radiance for all of eternity, no eye or mind can imagine that ornament of God's beauty. Joshua gathers the people in obedience to recommit to the law and in that all who have faith in the Lord, all who take refuge in the Lord are gathered in that moment, at that time, at that spot and they are the beautiful, grand people of God. And yet, we also see the assembly of the Lord here on earth described in such magnificent ways. The church of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. The church, as she assembles, is the light that shines in the darkness. The church, as she assembles, is a hill of hope for the hopeless. The church is a likeness of eternity 
She is beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. May we never forsake the gathering or give a cross word about her. Instead, may we serve her with gladness, cherish her, behold her, sacrifice for her, love her, speak of her and her beauty, and look to her groom, the Lord, who will come to receive his beautiful bride. In a few months, it'll be 22 years since I stood right there and my bride came through that door right there. And as she walked down that aisle, still today, I see every part of her. I see the train of her gown. And as beautiful as that is to me, and as magnificent of a memory as I hold in my heart about that moment, it is but a brief taste of that day when Christ will be united with His bride for all of eternity. As beautiful as my wife was when she walked through that door, Christ looks on His church today, this grand, beautiful assembly, ready to come and receive her and to make His glory shine upon her for all of eternity. Are you not encouraged today that no matter where you came from, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're Native American, whether you came from the Pacific Northwest or whether you came from Louisiana, whether your family has a history or your family doesn't have a history, no matter what, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are ushered with the angels of God, with the glory of God, with the sovereignty of God. They are ushered into the assembly that is the once and for all forever assembly. Are you not encouraged today? Would you stand with me as we move into a time of remembrance, a time of thanksgiving, and yes, even a time of repentance. As you think about the great, glorious God, Yahweh, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the creator of all things, that would give His one and only Son and sacrifice Him on a cross that you might be forgiven of your sins. Maybe today is a day of repentance as much as it is a day of worship and thanksgiving. All of it's worship. In fact, you can't worship if you haven't repented. You can't worship in truth and spirit if you have not repented of your sins. So whether today is a day of thanksgiving, to joyfully sing as knowing you stand firmly in the assembly of the great and beautiful church of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, or maybe you just need to repent before you can really enjoy that, let today be a day of worship for you. I'll be down front. Our elders and our staff will be down front to receive you for prayer and conversation. Father, we love you and we trust you.
And we thank you, Lord, that in our weakness, as we were separated from you, we had no home. We were aliens, drifting, hopeless. You have joined us through your son, Jesus Christ, into a great and glorious assembly. And as we look and wait for your son to return, Jesus, we call on you. We are anxious. May we be found faithful. May we be that beacon of hope and light to all the nations, those all around us looking for refuge for their soul. May we be faithful and obedient, and may we worship today in truth and spirit. It's in Christ and we pray and all of God's people said.